We're starting in five, four, three, two. So we told you guys that uh, on our show, we had Chris Spangle from uh, Indiana, Indianapolis area, as well as Dave Houston. And they were both on our show uh, talking about uh, libertarianism and stuff like that. And they eventually went off and uh, had another conversation on their own, which is something that, correct me if I'm wrong, Al, that's what we want people to do out of this as opposed to people being out there and angry at each other all the time. If you don't understand where somebody else is coming from, go out and talk to them. Conversations come up with other good conversations. Yes. So uh, what we did is they they got on, they, they talked to each other, and uh, we recorded that conversation, and here it is. It's that simple. All right. Chris, so... Um... Thanks for taking the time to, to talk with me. I, I After our last uh, discussion, there was a bunch of questions I had, and I just thought the topic was really interesting. So I wanted to get together and uh, continue the discussion on libertarianism and sort of the um, the ways that that we can think about libertarianism in today's society. So, sure. Um, yeah. Let's, yeah. So let's just take gonna, a moment and just in case there, you know, people didn't listen and they're like, who are these two on yeah. Alan Frank's channel? You know, maybe introduce yourself and then I'll go. Sure, sure. Uh, my name is Dave Houston, and uh, I've been a, a friend of Frank's for a long time. And um, we grew up together, and it's just interesting to uh, talk to some of his guests and, and uh, give my point of view on a couple of subjects. So uh, I'm just uh, enjoying the time. And my name is Chris Spangle, and I'm the host of We Are Libertarians. And I know Frank through the Bob and Tom show, where I do all the web stuff. And he and I got talking politics one day, and he was like, you know, I'm doing this podcast. You want to come on? And so I said, sure. So I came on for a couple episodes, talked a whole bunch. And uh, Dave, Dave <laughs> sent word through Frank, like, hey, I want to hear him talk some more. And I couldn't believe that anybody wanted to hear me say anything else. But uh, come on. Come on. <laughs> so here we are, the JV yeah. squad of the Alan Frank Try to Be Serious podcast. Definitely, definitely. But I just think there's a there's a lot going on recently in the news, a lot going on in the world. And I just thought that getting a, a sort of libertarian take on certain things would be a good uh, uh, good for me personally in terms of my development and my uh, development, my belief system and, and my politics. So um, I just say, you know, I, I I was taken by our our conversation when you talked a little bit about empathy as being the sort of foundation uh, of libertarianism. And I, I, I struggled with that a little bit because on the one hand, I think of empathy as reaching out to your neighbor and helping out. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, when you, when you apply that to situations, uh, that we have like geopolitically, whether you're talking about like Syria or, um, Afghanistan or things like that, the non-interventionism that, that, um, uh, libertarians espouse like what how do you how do you think of empathy and apply it in a broader sphere geopolitically does that make sense yeah absolutely I mean, you know. we actually just our most recent episode we talked about venezuela and i said to the guys that i was in in the chat room with and i, I said this is when it sucks to be a libertarian because it feels like the right thing to do is intervene and right. get involved. And I think that we have this view of intervention. I don't know if you've seen Jericho on Netflix. It's like an okay. old TV show. It's like the number one cult. It's really good. It's a really good TV show. I just watched it. 
And it's about this Kansas town that a, a nuclear blast takes place. And it's just the first season's the fallout from this nuclear blast. And they are just struggling to survive. And then there's this moment, there's two moments where the military comes in. And it's just like this huge relief. And everybody is so excited and happy because their troubles are over. And there's some sense of order now. And I think we think that when we actually go into Syria and intervene, or when we go into Iraq and intervene, or Afghanistan, that we bring a sense of order. And in some cases, we do. In Afghanistan, we bring some sense of order. But the problem, the reason that I'm a non-interventionist, and this was the last piece of my libertarianism. I mean, this is the, the part that ironically was the last thing for me to give up of, okay. in my thinking. It was very challenging. And now it's the most, it's probably the thing that I'm most motivated by because I look at the results. And so I always say I'm a libertarian, not because of greed or selfishness or whatever kind of stereotype you might know. It's because I look at results. And the reality is that when we get involved in these other countries, the results never really turn out that well. We end up making things a lot worse because I don't think there's anybody that would look at, at a lot of government programs like the VA, which right. we can directly control through law, that we'd look at and go, this makes sense. This is a really well-run program. <laughs> so I think you know, elections are really kind of one of the few things that we do right, but everything else that the government does, just in our opinion as a society, doesn't do well. Okay. And it's it's even worse when you start applying that to local populations that don't share our culture, our laws, our set of values. And so when you look at the results of the last 30, 20, 30 years, and you look at a place like Iraq or Syria or some of these other locations and how they've turned out, we made a miscalculation that, that the Bush doctrine, the Wilson doctrine, uh, which are sort of the same thing, which is let's export American democracy to other places. It just doesn't work everywhere. It doesn't mean that democracy can't flourish, but it does mean that the people who are on the ground in those locations have to decide how that works, mm -hmm. how they make it work for themselves. And a, a place like Venezuela, let's go back to that example. Yeah, yeah. So for those who don't really understand what's going on, in Venezuela right now, you've got – you've in the 90s, you had Hugo Chavez come up, and there was a right-wing American-backed dictator, for all intents and purposes, mm -hmm. that was taking the oil resources, which they have the biggest reserves in the world, bigger, bigger than Saudi Arabia even, and they were taking the profits and they were giving it to the right-wing elite in the country. And Hugo Chavez came along and said, this belongs to the people. And, and it was it, it legitimately right. did. All the oil reserves was, is on pu public land and had been forever. And so he said, let's completely turn this upside down. Let's give the, the profits back to the people. Let's create you know uh, access to free medicine, free health care, free education. Uh, and you know they could do that when they had all these massive oil profits through the 90s and 2000s, but then mm -hmm. around 2010, right around when he started to pass away, all that plummeted. And so they could no longer afford all those social programs. And, you know, Chavez died of cancer, Maduro took over. And right. as things really went south, he clamped down to maintain power. 
And so they had done a couple things where like they took over the Supreme Court, they took over the legislature. And and I'm getting to a point soon, but I I think yeah, this, no worries. we gotta no get worries. into the weeds to make this point. Right, right. So Maduro basically has rigged an, an election this past uh, year, uh, a recall election, and mm-hmm. the president of one of the two legislatures that they have said that he's illegitimate, and so therefore under our constitution, I am I'm the acting head of the government until we can hold a new election. So you have a constitutional crisis between these these different groups, the, the pro-Maduro socialists and the non-Maduro uh, people. And so we have a constitutional crisis in a place like Venezuela. And the American government, the Canadians really kind of led the way, uh, and several other Western countries have said, he's the legitimate head of the government, we're going to meet with them as as a dip, that's diplomats and Maduro's non non uh, legitimate and he's backed by Russia and China because he owes a tremendous amount of money to them and they want to get paid back, and so mm-hmm. you have the beginnings of what happened in Syria in Venezuela where Russia and China and you know in, in Turkey and Iran backed Assad and then the United States backed rebel groups, and then. What usually happens in these interventions is American politicians start lining up and saying, we support the the rebels, we support the freedom fighters, we support the other side. And we give the idea to the populations on the ground that we will be there with military support. Because there will come a time when an armed conflict will take place when you have this kind of divided government. I mean, think about how divided we are and we still have some legitimacy in terms of how we think about our our legal system, well, they don't have right, that, right. and so the problem with interventions is that eventually we we say yes, we're with you, we're with you, we're with you, and then when the time comes and we really have to cash that check, we don't. We give indirect support, and it's always ill fate. It's always too weak, and what you do is you end up having uh, Russia or China or some other interfering country arm the existing government that has control of all the existing military, they then slaughter the people that you were backing and it turns into a Syrian situation. And so we've seen this in Libya, we've seen this in Syria. We, you know, so when I look at it from an empathetic point of view, I, I try to put myself in the shoes of those other countries too. If I'm a Venezuelan and this, and polls are showing this, I'm going, the reason we have Chavez is because of colonialism and imperialism and the Monroe Doctrine and the United States thinking that they control the Western Hemisphere. And he came to power because he was fighting the great Satan. You know, you may remember right, right. the UN when he's standing behind Bush going, oh, it smells like sulfur here. Uh, right, right. <laughs> and so our interferences bring these guys to power. And then we continually back right wing guys like uh, in Chile, Pinochet, who who was right. a right-wing dictator, but he was backed by us, so he was good. And we become a we become kind of the 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 thing that creates misery for the local populations. It's like if Russia right now said we don't find Donald Trump to be a legitimate president because of well, let's say China because of Russian interference, or Angela Merkel said we're yeah only you may want to choose a different one <laughs> yeah let, let's say Angela Merkel in Germany and the EU said we're only right. going to deal with Nancy Pelosi 
your president isn't legitimate. Like as Americans, wouldn't we all put on tri-corner hats, grab our muskets and fight the British again? Like it's, it, so yeah. it's sort of, do you feel, do you feel that, so? Go ahead. Do you feel that motivations matter? I mean, do you feel, you know, I think of, I think of the fact that, you know, look at where we have involved ourselves in the past and the, reasons behind that involvement mm -hmm. right so i look at things like um you know i look at venezuela and you're right with the, the world's largest oil reserves it makes sense for us to create stability in in venezuela mm -hmm. there's a there's a um we have a, a national interest in doing that but then i also think of things like rwanda mm -hmm. where a lot of the european countries would send in troops to try to um pacify rwanda and we had no interest because rwanda had nothing that we wanted Right. And so I I look at, you know, um, I look at, for example, Ireland, when Ireland sent troops to, to Rwanda, they did so out of, in my opinion, true empathy, mm -hmm. right? Uh, a true sense of wanting to help the Rwandan situation and the Rwandan people. Um, but we don't seem to get involved in those types of um, conflicts that don't, you know, Darfur or, or what have you. We, right. we, we're, we're not really interested in the empathetic approach to intervention, we're interested in more of the Machiavellian kind of approach to intervention. You and I are, but yeah. the people who run our government seem to back the people who have financial interest in it. You know, I think there's a good right. reason that Hillary, like there's a reason Hillary Clinton and the Clinton Foundation hasn't, hasn't been investigated. And it's because that's business as usual. You know, the Frank Joosters of the world get, get, mining rights to to certain things and they get clearance from the state department because it's good for american business i think we have right and this is sort of where my libertarianism starts to sound like a democracy now uh you know like leftist <laughs> where where but I, I i think if you think about government power you think about right. who controls the government and i don't really think it's us because look at how many of the people who are in power were sure Hillary Clinton was going to win. And right. this is the one time where we all surprised them. And look at, look, and that's what I think a lot of the Russia investigation is. No one who's been charged in the Russia investigation has been charged with a crime that was committed in 2016. You know, most of them are after the Mueller investigation started with process crimes. And so it is a lot of people and it's and it is a bit of the deep state argument although i don't think that the deep state is ne you know like this big network of people i but i right. do think that it is common sense to think that people network together naturally and the powerful network with each other i did a podcast right. today we have something called the swamp explained where i talked to uh you know a friend of mine who works in washington he was the issues director for george hw bush and he was telling me you know he's the third hire on the 1980 campaign and he was telling me how his job was to set up meetings for prep for George H.W. Bush at Kennebunkport. And, you know, he's talking about all these establishment guys that come in and start telling H.W., you know, here's what we think about this. And I just kind of said, like, at what point does somebody who is not part of the establishment, do they get in that room? And the answer is no. Right. Like, right. so. But it doesn't have to be some broad conspiracy to keep them out necessarily. It's just right. more of a, um, you know, wealth begets wealth and power begets power. And that's just the circle you run in. And absolutely there's not, there's not some grand conspiracy where people are meeting and dividing up the world. They all just do what they do, but they know that in doing what they do, it's in benefit of, of, of them. 
they're helping their college buddies. Right, exactly. Like you help your college buddies. You exactly. just didn't go to Yale. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, like, and so it, and it used to not be that way. I mean, it was really Kennedy who brought in the Harvard guys first, and then, then it turned into Yale guys now. But, you know, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist because I don't, I've been around government so long that I just understand the, the insanity of bureaucracy and the folly that follows. Right. I never can, you know, but... It, it it is foolish to think that there aren't a group of people who have sh- a shared interest and you and I being in charge is not one of their interests. You right. know, it is making right. sure that there is stability where the world's resources take place. And so, you know, there there's a lot of, there's a guy who wrote a book called The Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And I don't know how valid it is, but it seems, if you look into it, to be a fairly valid premise and that his job was to go to these countries on the behalf of multinational corporations and governments and get get loans for the you know the IMF or the World Bank and the right. UN loan money to a Venezuela or a Nigeria against their resources and then all those resources get sucked out to the western countries right and then the local populations are left with nothing and that's Fairly which is true. exactly which is exactly what China is doing in in Africa. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I mean they're they're very um, methodical about how they're going about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It makes I mean it makes perfect sense. I just I, I I hesitate when when people talk about deep state because I just I don't I don't necessarily I don't think that the government government is coordinated enough to be able to pull off something like that. It, you know. Uh, it, it takes very little to get into a position of power in this country. Hmm. Like if you if you are bright enough and work hard enough and get to Yale, you're pretty much in. Like you, you know, here's here's my friend who is you know in his 60s now. He just was in the right places at the right time, and then ends up in the room with the future president of the United States. Like right. Uh, it, it it it. So I think conspiracy theorists like want to assign order when there is chaos because it just there has to be their brains can't handle that level of of chaos and dysfunction like i exactly. i just don't i don't buy but i do think that there is i i think it's a two-part thing i do think there are some people the kissingers of the world who understand in a post cold war or in a cold war era or a post-world war ii era we need the united states to position itself to now that the now that the european powers are are battered right you know, we need to position ourselves to protect these resources and protect the west and protect us from the USSR, and then a lot of people go along with it, and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like right. Max Boot just wrote an article or a tweet saying, you know, Afghanistan needs to be like the India Indian Wars, where where they're just there for a hundred years, you know. And so Americans, you know, that's not a guy who is sitting there thinking about enriching, you know, multinational corporations. That's right. a guy who just goes along, and this is the system, and we need to protect it. It's the the argument that if we pull out of Afghanistan, everybody's going to get slaughtered. Well, that's probably not true because at the end of the day, we don't. We've lessened and lessened and lessened our involvement, and the Taliban has taken over more and more territory to the point that we're largely irrelevant and powerless in Afghanistan. We're just still throwing a ton of money at it. Right. Right. Do you think that um, the, that sort of old boy network and the smoke-filled rooms and the deal making? I mean. There's a part of me, it's very anti-democratic, but there's a part of me that says that that creates an efficient system. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And it, it might not be the most democratic approach, but it is an efficient system. We do move forward. And I look at countries like, like China, uh, where they have a vision that they're putting in place and they're, yeah. they're sort of Russia too, Russia too. Right. Um, and they're doing it in a very organized, methodical fashion. And one of the things that is a hallmark of that is there, there, there is no opposition. So I look at that and I say, okay, you know, here you have a country like China that before 1990 wasn't even in the top 10 in terms of GDP, right? And they're, they're set to surpass us in, in the span of 20, 25 years, right? Um, and they do that because they have a plan, they're working the plan, there is no opposition, and they're moving in a very efficient manner. And then mm-hmm. you look at the United States where, you know, for a long period of time, we were the dominant force. And I just feel like, in a way, we almost need to go back to that smoke-filled room deal-making to get progress. It's not a right? matter of and going movement. back to it. Like, we invented it. <laughs> so if, yeah, you, if, you go back to the, if you go back to the founding of the country, it is the, the elite of, the, of this island, basically, that got together and said, let's give them a choice, but not too much choice. Let's, right. You know, right. if... if uh, the the entire American system was designed to to balance a couple things because they knew that if you have too much democracy and too many warring factions, that's what brought down Rome. That's if you read right. Mike Duncan's great book. Uh, I forget what the name of it is. Before the storm, something Mike Duncan is the guy. He wrote basically that 150 year slide of the Republican to Caesarian dictatorship. And what you see is too many warring factions, too many demagogues can easily manipulate the crowds. And I, one of the things I worry about is that with social media, we have too many crowds. And I think part of our dysfunction is, is almost uh, too much democracy. There's a, there's a libertarian thinker named uh, Hans Hoppe who wrote the book called Democracy, the God That Failed and basically argues for stateless dictatorships <laughs> because it okay. is efficient. And so... You know, America invented the idea of a ruling elite appointing the senators and, you know, the people electing the House, but we get the senators to make sure that you people don't get a little too crazy, right, right. and we have we have a de facto king, and then there's another check on that. And so what they tried to do is balance. They understood exactly what you're saying, but they didn't want it, they didn't want it to, they wanted to try and create democracy, but not too much democracy. Right. And that's, that, where you, that's where you see the massive amount of growth. And so you had the real reason we're an American power is that we were the bank for both sides of, you know, the First World War. And then we were the bank for the Second World War. And that influx of capital really created the, the superpower that we are. Uh, and so, you know, the, that's why we want to stay the world's currency reserve. We want to stay. So we we're not going yeah. back to that. We we are there. Like the people who who are in the elite circles still control things. Like you and I have. We right. can make a difference. We can we can become part of those elites to some in some ways. But it, and that's what I struggle with. Right? Is is you know when you look at like Howard Schultz uh, throwing his hat in the ring, and you've got Bloomberg, and you've got you know a lot of people that lean a little bit more left socially, like I do. Um, I'm I'm sort of drawn to them, but at the same time, I, I have to remind myself these are all billionaires. These are these are all uh, when we when we talk about the average man, they're not they're not representative of that. 
but they strong. also they also could lose to like the absolute poor people that are Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris. Right. So right. so there is some balance within the system. And I think a Howard Schultz, we do want to be a Michael Bloomberg or Howard Schultz. It's why it's like every every businessman that you knew in the 80s, my dad was a small businessman who wanted to be Donald Trump. Like they're, you know, that like in the 80s, he was right. the guy that everybody yeah. wanted to be yeah. because he was a self-made man and that, you know, we know isn't true now. But there's the American system affords people the ability to rise up into that class. And I find the argument that Howard Schultz isn't qualified because he's a white billionaire, a white male billionaire to be ludicrous because here's a guy who could manage the bureaucracy, who could manage right. all these competing visions. Whereas a Kamala Harris, who really doesn't have a lot of experience. I think part of the problem that, that is lending credence to your argument is that Barack Obama and Donald Trump had no ability to manage a bureaucracy, but right. who's the best president in, in our lifetime in terms of managing policy and getting it passed? It's Bill Clinton, who had, you know, decade, a decade at least of experience right. of managing bureaucracy in, in Arkansas. Uh, George Bush was fairly effective and he was governor. So, mm -hmm. um, so I think there, you know, I look at it and I go, I, I get what you're saying. I want that efficiency, but I also don't want these lunatic billionaires. Why does Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump, like, why are we also invested in what these two lunatics decide? Like, we're <laughs> we're arguing over the shutdown because these two lunatics have all the power. And so we're we're living and dying and people are starving and, like, selling their heirlooms to make rent because – these two people have their, their ego just can't allow them to right. compromise. So right. I, that's where I go. The, the system needs to be reformed and it means taking less power. And that's, I go back to the original American system. The government needs to be most powerful where it's closest to you. Uh, and if you can, and if we can convince enough people that that's the case, then evolve right. that to where you don't even need a local government, you know? And so, I, I just think of from an efficiency, like from an efficiency standpoint, I, I see what you're saying and I, I get it. But from an efficiency standpoint, I look at a centralization as being able to push through efficient reform uh, quickly, I guess would be the word, um, because we are in a global competition. Yeah, but it's easier to buy. It's easier right? to buy them off like the, it, it, it's more efficient if you have more people that the company uh, corporations have to buy off. <laughs> like, right. uh, and I know that that you're thinking in terms of the government is the one that produces success and government robs success. It is the free market that provides solutions. And in, when you look at any industry, as you look, there's a book called the crisis of the Leviathan and it's by Robert Higgs. And it's basically it shows you over American history, step by step, how the central government has been able to consolidate power, right. and it has just created more and more traction. I don't think you can look at a time in American history where there's more centralized power than there is in Washington, D.C., and there's more dysfunction and less ability to pass anything than ever before. Yeah. But do you believe we live in a free market? Um. Not, not, not quite. I mean, I think if you look at anything in your room or anything in front of you, is there, there is some level of government that is touching that. Right. Uh, and so, 
you know, we, we have a freer market than most, but we're not quite Hong Kong, which is shrinking or Singapore, you know? And so when you look at uh, Hong Kong, it was the most successful part of China until China took it over from the British. And now it's becoming, it's dwindling in Cato's statistics in terms of economic freedom. So yeah, you have the freedom to go out and start a business, but you have to get government permission first. You have patent laws, you have copyrights, you have, you know, you have more freedom than than maybe other places, but you still do have a lot of government intervention and you have to ask yeah. permission for a lot of things. Well, and I think, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. I think of, you know, when you talk about free markets, there's two different ways of looking at it in my mind. One of them is from the standpoint of government involvement, which would be regulation, right? Mm-hmm. The other is, is it truly a free market? Are you truly able to compete fairly with other entrants into the marketplace, right? And that's where I get a little bit, um, uh, I don't know what the word is, a little, a little bit uh, confused in the sense that are we actually, is it a free market or is it a rigged economy? Not necessarily, take take the, the regulation arguments away for a moment and think of it in terms of who dominates markets. Mm-hmm. And are you able to actually effectively compete in today's day and age or, you know, or, or, or is your fate somewhat determined by those who already dominate the markets? Well, I, here, here's the problem. So there's, there's always, it doesn't matter if you have the government we have now, or if you have a pure free market, there's always going to be a boom and a bust cycle. There's always going to be a growth, a centralization of power, a busting of that power, and then a, a diffusion again. That's the good. problem is that when the government is in charge of regulation, there's that cycle is way longer and it's mm-hmm. way harder for justice to prevail. And it's way easier for the corporations to hide their misdeeds because they can buy they can buy off regulators. Right. And so if you think in terms of things that you use in your own life, like if you watch movies like watching this Jericho show from 2005, it looks like pretty much 2018. Like it really looks exactly the same. The houses kind of look the same, the decorations, the but what's the thing that when you watch a movie from the 2000s that looks completely different than what you have in your hand now? What is it? Cell phone. Cell phone. And so when you think about the the internet and the massive amount of innovation that you've been able to create in a short amount of time, like 15 years ago, we didn't have Uber. We uh, Facebook had just begun. Like YouTube didn't exist. You know, when you think about the things 20 years ago that millennials alone, which I'm the oldest millennial at 35. Like, think about the corporations that they've been able to start because they have almost all you have to do is sit down and create a website. Right. And, and there, you don't have to ask. You, you may have to go to your secretary of state and get a piece of paper. But, you know, you grow into a Facebook. And but so does that go back to does that go back to your comment of of, you know, the, the Harvard buddies taking care of each other where um, you enter that elite club, but then that elite club becomes the determining factor as to what can make its way into the market because that elite club then controls the regulatory body, right? Well, but a, a Harvard, or, a Harvard uh, attendee, I don't think he graduated like Mark Zuckerberg, you know, 
Tom from MySpace didn't go to Harvard, you know, so you, you know, I am able because I have a website and a podcast, I can compete with CNN (laughs) for, for people's attention. It's the great equalizer. And that's because there's no regulation. And it puts more power into the consumer's hand, which I think is a good thing. And so you you have the ability as a consumer to get the things that you really want and the things that you really like. And if they're bad, if, if people are leaving Facebook not because the government is telling them to leave Facebook, they're telling him they're doing that because they realize this is not this is not helpful to me or my right. health. Uh, I don't trust these people. And so you're starting to see the erosion of their business. And so you can see the bust of that company coming. But the problem with regulation is that Facebook and Twitter and some of these other companies, as much as they protest regulation, they welcome it. And the reason is that every time in American history, we've had one of these great conflagrations where we need to regulate this this uh, organization and this group of people, they get bought in and then they cement their position in the marketplace and absolutely squeeze out anyone else because they right. are the ones who can afford to pay off the congressman for $2,000 a pop. And so then they write regulations that make it virtually impossible for someone else to start a business. Right, right. So, like, if you want to get into building electronics, um, you know, healthcare is, is a great example of an industry that was fairly free market and fairly easy to access. And then uh, and then you have Richard Nixon create the HMO Act in 71, and then that's when the the, the uh, insurance companies basically set up the system that benefited them, you know, and then Barack Obama tried to uh, reshuffle that and in favor of the free of, of your regular person. And if you read America's Bitter Pill, you see, oh, the, the insurance companies got you again. <laughs> so. Right. Right. So it, it is the power. If if you can afford to point the gun at whomever you'd like to point the gun at, and I, and I know that there were some people that in the last couple podcasts really took exception with the idea of government force, but you really have mm-hmm. to think about it. Like, if you don't use Facebook or you choose to opt out of Facebook, there isn't anything they can do about it. But if you choose not to pay your taxes, somebody is eventually coming to knock on your door and put you in jail. And right, that, is, that right. is the reality. Government is popular in terms of solutions because it's force. And so, so so does the government have a role as perhaps a referee? I mean, is there what do you put in place to ensure that at the end of the day one person doesn't control all the resources? It's just a virtual impossibility. Like it's it's it, it, I this is a common concern with libertarianism is is the what if Right. And what you always have to point back is, and say is, is that not happening now with a lot of regulation? <laughs> like it's you have a better chance of upending the system by having uh, someone come along and create and innovate. And then you do in, mm-hmm. in a system like we have now. And so who is the referee? It's you and me. It's our pocketbook. It's who we decide has all the power. And mm. the problem with our system now is you and I don't decide who has the power. Yep. We are subject to whoever has the power because we don't have enough money to buy the power. Right. So libertarianism is really about putting it back into the hands of regular people. And so, and that's where empathy comes into play because, you know, w- w- with overseas, our government is tilting the, the power in favor of who they like would, would like to have the power. And 
business. They're tilting it in favor of who they'd like to have the power. It's the people at the top that are doing that. Right. And what I want is the people at the bottom to have the power to tell the people at the top, you're not in power anymore. And it's a more fair and equitable system where people, people make decisions based on like, really, when you think about where you spend your dollars, like restaurants are fairly free, right? Right. I don't go to a lot of chain restaurants and it's because I get to know the people that work at the local restaurants. They're part of my community. I want to support them. Like when you really think about how you spend your own money, like you kind of hate that you have to go to a place like a Walmart because they're just so big and evil and the media has done all these pieces on them that make them look bad. And so you go to Meyer or you go to the mom and pop shop and you make choices mm-hmm. that, you know, the green, like we didn't need the government to tell people to tell corporations to go green. We as consumers have said, we want you to be environmentally friendly. And then all of a sudden P and G and Johnson and Johnson are running ads saying, look at how green we are. It's right. the marketplace that really made that decision for those companies, not the government. So, but then, but then look at okay. So uh, I agree with that. But then take the situation of of the current backlash against climate change and the current, uh, you know, uh, coal rolling and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Where where does that fit into to your last statement? Right. I mean, if it feels like you're right, the marketplace is demanding a certain thing, and companies are stepping up to do that. But then you have this countervailing force. Uh, that I don't know in terms of who's funding it or what have you, but that is fighting against that to go backwards. Right. I don't. Right. Uh, I mean, there's, there's always going to be some level of misinformation in a society, Uh, not misinformation, disinformation. There's a difference. People, you know, like there, there's no doubt that, um, you know, some think tanks are, are funded by oil companies to discredit climate change. But let me ask you, why why do you think that those all right, when you look at the proposals of climate change legislation, right. like have you looked into the Green New Deal at all? Uh not not in depth, no. Okay. It is a complete nationalization of all industry in the United States. <laughs> like there I'm not I'm not even exaggerating. Mm. I mean, if you we did an episode on it where we broke it down, like you listen to it and you go Wow. Okay. And you, we start with the propaganda around it to, to instill, they're instilling fear in, in kids across the nation. Like we're all going to die in 10 years. Well, you said that 10 years ago, like you and I are old enough to know that's bull crap, but an 18 year old doesn't know any different because this is the first time they're experiencing life as an adult. So of course I just believe what Ocasio-Cortez says, you know? And so I think she believes what she says, but you know, there's, there's, so disinformation happens on both sides of the issue. But when you sit down and watch Vice and watch a piece of journalism and they take a camera up to the to the polar, uh, you know, the, the polar caps, you go, oh, there's no doubt that this is happening. I get right. it. OK, you know, right. and so you can cut through that disinformation very quickly. Um, so propaganda, a lot of times when truth is was is easily available and it's easily available when there's more journalism, when there's more conversations like this, like it gets cut through pretty quickly. So sure. I, I never find sure. the argument we need the government to do X to protect us from propaganda. It's like the government's the best propagandist in the game. They invented it. <laughs> like, um, so 
So when so going back to climate change, but it's not just but it's not just propaganda. I mean, you have you have people in power now that are pushing legislation, that are pushing agendas to actively roll back any moves toward, uh, for example, alternative energy. Right. right so that, because so, because the, the the proposals that are outlined, you know, something like a cap and trade system or a tax on carbon or a green new deal, these things are so fundamentally opposed to the free market and and you and you're going to impose that on people and so yeah. you know you're you're scaring people with the force that would be brought about to control industries like you're basically saying it's it's sort of the atlas shrugged argument where the government is just passing these regulations and taking over the companies and then you know there's the last holdout the henry Stan harry stanton's or whatever his name is uh, i never read the book i just watched the horrible mm -hmm. movies but you know like it it, 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 like you, I don't know if you own a company, but like you built that. Who is the government to tell you that you need to hire a compliance officer to force you how you ought to run your business? Like you, as a business owner, are reasonable enough to know what you what you should or should not do. And if you're not, insurance companies will be happy to help you understand what your risk assessment is. Yeah, you know. So I I, I look at it and I go, yeah, there's a lot of like freak out over this stuff, but it always goes back to somebody trying to impose their values on somebody else. And that's really what people are rejecting. They're rejecting being told what to do. Right. And it's not, they're rejecting the idea of climate change that, that, that happens because people aren't complex. They're not thinking it through in certain ways. They're not right. like people think of it things in very simplistic terms. Yeah. The knee jerk reaction is to say that right. it's not real, right? Cause right. you don't want to have to accept the, the implications of saying that it's real. Right. Like I think gay marriage is a great example. It's a very illustrative of what I'm saying. Mm. I think most people have absolutely no idea with two people living the way that they want to live or loving the way they want to love. But right. when, when, gays are told by Christians, you're not allowed to live this way. They are in the streets. And then when now, then when you're told how to run your business and you have to bake that cake, then they start passing religious freedom laws. Like that's the back, the back and forth is not that gays and Christians hate each other. Yeah. It's that they don't want to f be forced to live the other way the other one wants. And so if you remove that and say, you know what, Let's get rid of gov government marriage altogether. It was only put in place to keep blacks and whites from marrying 100 years ago. Look it up. That's the truth. And so when you remove the force, you say, you know, and we're going to get rid of uh, con marriage contracts passed by legislations. So now you, instead of going to a divorce lawyer, are going to a marriage lawyer. And you're sitting down with the person you're about to marry. You're writing out, if things go wrong, you get this, I get this, how's this going to work? Who gets the kids? And then all of a sudden, you know, there'd be so many, few, there'd be so fewer marriages because people <laughs> would start to see what they actually value in life. Right, right. Like, They'd have to do it up front. Yeah. We'd, we'd have, the, the divorce rates would plummet because people would actually start to marry people that they have common shared interest with. And so, yeah. you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's the force at the end of the day. It's right. making people live the way that you think they ought to live. Well, who bus whose business, they've, I don't care what you think about my life. Yeah, I'm, I'm an intelligent adult that wants to live the way I want to live. So right. get off my back, get out of my face. But you bring up a good point that that I sort of, you know, when I think about libertarianism, that I struggle with, and that is the public versus the private sphere, right? Mm -hmm. So when you talk about, for the most part, we are fairly free in our private lives, 
right? What right. we do in our house for the most part is, is, is fairly free. Right. Um, but my approach is sort of do whatever you like, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else in the private sphere. When you enter the public sphere, that's where the gray area comes in or the difficulty in implementing a libertarian ethos comes in because in my mind, the public sphere should just be one big empty space, right? It should just be one, um, I don't know what the word is. It, uh, you know, you, non-existent. Well, not 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 necessarily non-existent, but just just um, empty, devoid of of uh, religious overtones, devoid of um, societal norm overtones. Right, just sort of a place where it's different. If you don't want to invite uh, um, a gay couple into your home, you don't have to. Mm-hmm. Right, but. If you are operating a business in the public sphere, if you are out in the public sphere, the, I think the rules should be different in the public than the, than it is in the private. Does that make sense? Or is are you- yes, I think I, I think I know what you're saying. So allow me to kind of repeat that back. So yeah. to, to, so you know, you hang a shingle on your door, then there's certain expectations. Right. of how you conduct your business to the public face. Right. All right. So common law common law was developed and that's the basis of the American legal system, the British legal system, the French legal system. It's just like over a period of hundreds and thousands of years, common laws just kind of developed. Like you don't need to pass a law to know that two people living in a house are married. Like right. they just, they're living a life together. They're putting it together. It's the common law marriage idea. You know, so common law really took care of a lot of societal organization before we really got to, you know, because even in the, in the time of kings, like a king couldn't really come down and govern over, you know, and, and even in America today, like I had my tires stolen. Like, do you think that the government came down and helped me investigate who took my tires? No. Like, really, at the end of the day, I'm in charge of my own self-protection. That's why, like, the government isn't going to come and investigate. They're not going to protect my property. They're not going to protect my person. In fact, the Supreme Court says that if you call the police, they don't have to respond, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which was just upheld three weeks ago in another ruling. Like, you're really responsible for yourself. And so if you're really responsible for yourself, shouldn't you not be shouldn't you have self-government and so what what rules can what rules govern you and i are like what rules the government passes in washington dc 535 guys and another one signing this piece of paper like it really most of the time doesn't affect you and me what affects what what affects you and i are the rules of human engagement and human behavior you know, and those are so set in our DNA that common laws just kind of develop. Like, it's outrageous to people that if you put a shingle up, you set up an implicit contract that you're going to let anybody come into your business and you're going to serve everybody. And it's an outrage to just the human animal if we say, no, I'm going to only allow certain types of people in. Right. Okay, well then, then you're a club. Like, but you know, and that outrage is what spurns the market to put that person out of business because they violated the social norms of the community. And so you don't need a law at the Supreme Court level to say masterpiece cakes can do what they want or can't do what they want, because 
Right. But take that back 50 years. Right. Mm -hmm. And and when you have the segregated South and you had the majority of the society that wanted that particular um, structure. Right. And it required somebody from the outside. It required the federal government to come in and say, no, even though the majority of you want this, you can't have it. Right. It, the rules of the rules of justice and and f- not fairness, but just justice, like right. and equality were so absolutely like violated in the South that the North had had a problem with it forever. And I, I think, you know, it 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 would have at this point with the ability to have the conversations we can have at such a high level. Like, there's no doubt in my mind that we don't need the government to pass the civil rights laws. Like, we would all solve that problem ourselves. Like, I think, you know, you look at the police situation that Al brought up, like, that's a situation that conversations are spurned by that. And so people who, you know, are in the deepest parts of Georgia are watching the videos going, there's a problem here. How do I solve it in my own community? Mm -hmm. And so... So I just think that those common laws and a lot of that, like, yes, in that particular case, like when you li- when you live in a structure where you have a central government and you have state governments, the, the state, the central government, you know, this is probably a popular, uh, an unpopular opinion amongst libertarians. But mm. like when you look at the civil rights laws and the absolute violations that were happening in the South, like I like I have a real hard time saying that the Civil Rights Act wasn't a good thing. Right. Um, right. You know, but I, I've never actually argued with another libertarian about that. But like it just in terms of my values, justice and equality. Well, I think you could make sense. you could make a you could make a libertarian argument, I would think, for the Civil Rights Act in the sense that not having the Civil Rights Act was a violation of individual freedom. Right. Yeah, I think. And the, the individual freedom of, of the person who was discriminated against. Well. I don't know. Then this is where I'm going to upset a lot of liberals. Like the reason that blacks in the South are powerless is because they weren't allowed. I mean, the the way that a lot of blacks in the South had power is that they had weapons. They, the, the great untold gun rights argument in this country is the, the Southerners who had weaponry that prevented the Klan from coming in and taking their, you know, taking their property, their persons, Mm -hmm. like, you know, the gun, in the South gave them their power back. You know, there, if you look at the, the great movie, the free state of Jones on Netflix, mm-hmm. the, this entire part of Mississippi or Alabama was like a quarter of the state was free during the civil war because right. they upended the power system. So, so I think that when you look at it and go, well, the civil rights movement would have never happened without the federal government. I don't think that that's the case. I don't think that, uh, you, you'd have the same situation now that like, if you look at how quickly the gay marriage thing was settled, like right. we're talking a decade, you know? Right. And so in our modern environment where technology and information is so prevalent, like you don't need the same rules that we live by. And that's the great, that's the great hope for libertarianism is that things are moving so rapidly that the government can't keep up. And we all just finally realize we don't need the government anymore. And so it's an outdated mode of human organization. And and so going back to kind of life without, I I don't, I don't want to centralize authority because Mm. at the end of the day, think about your life. Your life is your immediate community. Mm. It is the people that are around you. 
and you all can kind of like we sit here and the bat the the great like the great harassment of libertarians is what about those people who live 500,000 miles away from you? It's like, I'll never meet them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're, they're irrelevant to my life and it's up to them to, to get their power back. Just like it's up to me and my community. Like right. we organize into very small groups. Like we have to think about how the human animal actually developed and start organizing society around right. the way that our brain works. But there is a sort of Machiavellian approach to that, which is saying, you know, you are able to organize in your small groups because there is a centralization that is out there ensuring that the oil is flowing, that the resources are coming in, that, uh, you know, those other groups that are uh, potentially a threat to your resources are being dealt with. Do, do you know what I mean? So there, there is sort of a an argument that says that we have that luxury and we have that freedom because there is a... Um, an entity that is controlling that outside or attempting to control that outside world. Do right? we have, do we have uh, petroleum jelly or do we have the plastic that is in this Logitech camera because a government said, you know what we need to create? <laughs> like the government made Velcro, they get that one. But like, right. think about a pencil, like who created the pencil? Right, right. You know, it's it's that famous eye pencil by Leonard Reed. Like, the the rubber comes from South America, the zinc comes from Africa, the wood comes from the Northwest, the the metal, you know, and it's all put together by a single person. But nobody knows right. who created the pencil. Somebody just said, "I need a more efficient way of writing," and then the market, with through spontaneous order, created the pencil. Right. And so, when you when you look at that it's not because the government centrally planned an economy it's because it's spontaneously developed it's 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 a planned well, chaos but but take it back a little bit further and that would be the result of you know for example uh, colonialism in rubber plantations mm -hmm. right so it's it i mean at the end of the day i i i get what you're saying um but the practical side of my mind keeps going to okay well if we do all organize into these smaller groups, who ensures that the interactions with the outside continue in the way that we would need them to continue? That those resources, and I look back to, um, uh, you know, to the to the approach that China is taking in Africa and, and other developing countries, where you know they are going in and they're building the ports, they're going in and they're building the airports, they're going in and they're building the mines, um, they're they're creating and embedding themselves in these countries for the sole purpose of being able to ensure that the natural resources and the human resources in those countries, the value from those is funneled back to China. Right. right. And they're doing it in a way that it, that supports the local population, unlike the the white colonialist of the 16, 1700s who did it by force. Like if you look at the rubber right. plantation argument, right. like why why are we outraged by the plantation argument? And it's because some people used force on other people. Right. And so so but continue. Yes. Like, well, no. And so I just I, I, I look at that and I say I. I I go back to this idea that we in America have the luxury of um, having these conversations and the luxury of talking about organizing ourselves in certain ways because we have this externalized entity that is out there um, ensuring through one way or another that the wealth and the resources and the 
talent and the labor and whatever we need to continue our livelihood keeps flowing our way. Right. And yes, but do, but do, do you think that it is because Washington DC exists that those things take place? I like, think is it, the, is it the cause? Is that what produces the wealth? The well, I, I think it's a, it's a, um, it's a link between those multinationals, those companies that are producing based on those resources that are being uh, extracted and the government itself. Right. Um, so, you know, if that weren't the case, I think we would be a non-interventionist government, but yet we seem to intervene in just about anything that has any bearing on uh, our ability to continue producing and our ability to continue generating wealth for our people, right? Right. So I, I struggle in the sense of how, um, you know, I, I look at the world in, in this way, that we can either choose to engage and compete aggressively, or we can isolate. And I'm concerned that uh, a sort of a libertarian approach or a, a small organizational approach is a kind of isolation versus a, a kind of competition. On the contrary, it's more of a competition than it is an isolation. Because okay, Talk about that because I, I – Right. That's okay. With. Yeah, because the in, the in the absence of – like libertarians are not isolationists. We okay. we are pro competition because I view the future the way to outmaneuver the Chinese is to be more capitalistic than the Chinese because it's not they're just not going to do it because their their government is fundamentally flawed it's a fundamentally communist top down approach society and so you know as a student of history looking at overarching power structures the the united states the foundation of the united states government was an enormous leap forward there's a book uh called the 5000 year leap that basically talked about like the 1700s to the 2000s is this massive leap in history we we had more progress in these 300 years than the free previous 5000 because of capitalism like i think if you look at um uh, the poverty rates. I mean, I, have you seen the poverty rates in in just since 1990? I haven't. Yeah, the the world's poverty uh, like has been cut in half. <laughs> like it's the poverty rates just over the last 30 years are staggering. And what has happened is is that free market capitalism has moved into places where dictators used to reign, where colonialism used to reign, where communism used to reign. And as these formerly communistic countries start to open up, like China is another great example of it, as they go from a command and control economy from the top down and open up their markets, they've become a massive power. And it's through the opening up of their uh, opening up their their resources in terms of human labor and, and capital. Right. Right. And so. So like the American experiment, the reason that we have become the world's superpower in such a short amount of time, the biggest government, the biggest country, the biggest economy, the biggest everything, is not because a central government existed. It's because a group of men in Philadelphia in 1789 said, all right, let's have just some tiny little guardrails here 
let's centralize the force around the adjudication of justice. So, you know, there, there can't be competing courts. And this is kind of where I break down in, in an anarcho-capitalist society where, like, if you subscribe monthly to this private court and I subscribe monthly to this private court and then I kill somebody in their jurisdiction, like, like, right. it, 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 like you want a centralization of some force. And so, like, I'm not a full anarchist because I haven't worked that problem out in my mind. I haven't been convinced that that can be done without that one piece of centralization. Right. But when right. you really look at the society when the American Republic was founded, like – the only when the federal government tried to to like put a tax on something, the the whiskey rebellion took place. Like that's how little government actually existed in the founding of this country. And every time it started to grow and grow, people would beat it down and they would say no. They'd they'd elect a Jackson and he'd close down the central bank. They'd pay off all the debt and you'd you'd have like these pockets of growth and 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 it would pop up. But right. you know the reason that that the country grew so quickly is because people were more free to enact capitalism as they saw it. Right. And so the well, way, we compete, the way that we compete in the future is by freeing up our economy to allow people to like, you have great ideas. I have great ideas to enact my ideas. I need you and you need me. You know, and but you and I don't need each other if we're getting our bread from the government or our, right. medi our right. medical care from the government. Like, as if you really look at American history, with the exception of the black population, I mean, there's no doubt that the South existed on on uh, on a perverted economic system, an evil economic system, and that's why the South right. was predominantly more poor than the North because the North relied on cooperation instead of you know keeping people as slaves and so when that that economic frustration is is a minor part of why the civil war started mm -hmm. you know because they felt the, the north there was a class struggle a little bit so right right you know so the growth of wealth does have those kind of those inequalities but the industrial revolution capitalism that's what lifted people out of of this agrarian so, poor society. Right. But so do you believe that there is such a thing as the end stage of capitalism? I mean, or do um, you believe it's a, see, I look at it, I, I'm a capitalist and, and I look mm -hmm. at it as um, capitalism uh, creates innovation. It creates wealth. It actually uh, is absolutely instrumental in how we've developed uh, as a, not only as a country, but worldwide. Um, but I also believe that there has to be some entity that comes in to constantly reset the balance, right? In order that the system itself continues to, to, to live, to, to, to um, expand and to grow. And so I just get concerned that if we don't, if you allow capitalism free reign, you know, laissez-faire capitalism, right? What ends up happening is all of the wealth and power is controlled by a handful. It, it Capitalism becomes oligopoly. It becomes uh, kleptocracy or, or what have you. So I, I guess my, my struggle, and I, because I agree with you 100% that capitalism is the driving force of, of the quality of life that we're seeing in our country. Um, and the it's, not even just, and it's not even about here. It's really right. like in worldwide. India and Africa yeah. and right. and South America. Like 
they need the West way less because the West is not exploiting their resources. They're cooperating with the West and selling their goods and services to us. And that's what's lifted India, for instance. Like right. India, you know, we, we joke about call centers, but like that is a huge opportunity for exactly. Indian people to afford food. And that's cooperation. That's not isolation. Like that's an right. example where I don't need my government to give them foreign aid. The foreign aid comes from AT&T hiring them. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, and so I agree with that. Continue. Yeah. Well, no, I agree with that. I, I guess from, from my standpoint, I just think of um, how do you, uh, yeah, I, I watched an interview. It's an old interview with um, Sir John. I think it's Sir John Goldsmith. I don't know if you've heard mm-hmm. of him. Um, no. But he was talking about. He was a, one of the original 1980s corporate raiders and um, you know ultra capitalist. But what he was saying is that you know if if you have a situation in which business and government become inter- intertwined, right, then you shatter the relationship between the negotiations of capital and labor and you tilt the scales such that those two can no longer balance each other out. Right. And, and serve as their own, um, uh, their own weight in terms of negotiation. But instead what you're doing is you are tilting the scale and that then becomes a situation where the economy is no longer viable. Because what will happen is it will run away. It's like a game of Monopoly. Right. Right. Eventually, one person wins. So you need some ability for people to effectively combat capital so that they can constantly be in this battle back and forth, which is the only way that capitalism can keep going and going and going versus having an actual end in which one controls all. But – is the government battling corporations? No, and that I agree. That, no, they're not, and that's Correct. that's what I'm struggling with. That's why I was asking the the question in the very beginning. Do you think we live in a free uh, a free market? Because I kind of believe we don't. I believe yeah. that the the intertwining and the interactions of um, government and big business is such that they're inextric- inextricable. So let's go and, back to his point you know, of. Government and business can't coexist. So if one has to die, who would you rather die? (laughs) (laughs) No, I I agree. It's not that they can't coexist. They can't, um, they have to be separate entities. But they fundamentally, I don't think can be. I, I think I agree with, I agree with him in that, you know, the... The, the problem with like Elizabeth Warren's Consumer Protection Bureau, mm-hmm. it's a great idea because I'm as mad as anybody about, you know, Bear Stearns and all these guys just walking away. Right. But like these guys just took the laws that had been written by previous generations of crony capitalists well, and played with them those rules. Yeah. Yeah. And so but then they all get off scot free. And so she comes along and says, let's create the Consumer Protection Bureau where we're going to, you know, regular people are going to get to fight wall street and this is going to what this is what's going to hold them accountable right and the problem with the with the entire bureau was that it was just it was a bunch of people that elizabeth warren had personally selected and barack obama had selected to be in that division 
and they just started going after Republican donors. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah. so instead of protecting everybody, they just started protecting liberals. And so it, it like, it's a great, it's a, like, you go back to your question about intentions. Like I, the intentions there are so good and I agree with them, but I have to look at the results and I have to go at some point, the results here are not good because somebody's winning and somebody's losing. And it's because we're asking the government to pick winners and losers when we're the ones that should be doing that. Right. You know, we're the ones who should be selecting who wins and loses. Like, you know, the, the reason that a, a, a Cornelius Vanderbilt can build this uh, railway empire is because he bought off enough politicians. Like that's the thing. It's the government force that is the, the missing piece of this equation. And so I wonder, I, I have to ask you, like, is it, I feel like you're almost there. I feel like you kind of get it and you're like, I want to agree, but right. I feel like I need to have the thing named. <laughs> like I will be more comfortable <laughs> if I can have, it's almost like that conspiracy theory argument where uh, George Bush did 9-11 because I just can't imagine that people would do that. So I need right. some evil plot to tap. Like, right. is it that you need to name the thing because the idea of, of just millions of little decisions by human beings every minute is just too conceptual. Like it's, it's, you know, cause to me, I just kind of go, I don't, it's like, I, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. And so, you know, I go, I don't fully understand this thing, but I'm just going to kind of take the leap and I believe yeah, it. Go with it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's sort of how I feel about capitalism. It's like if government or business has to die, I'm going to take business and I'm going to trust that thing, like, I just know gravity works. Like, Right, right. And I think, it, you know, it comes down to, for me, um, do I or do I not believe that people, individuals making the best choices for their individual selves uh, creates a system that that lays a, a, a foundation for everybody to succeed? Right. Are people are people making, you know, are markets rational? Are people rational? Are they making decisions in their best interest? And by doing so, is that creating decisions that are in our best interest? Or are there situations where um, what is not necessarily in my individual best interest is still in the best interest of society? Mm -hmm. And by creating that um, society in which uh the we're looking out for each other right mm -hmm. uh and will i be looked after and that's what that's what i'm kind of struggling with is 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 do i trust do i trust individuals to make decisions uh for themselves and in the private sphere i say yes right what they want to do with their lives is their business but then i say do i want them to make decisions that have global reaching impacts i don't know I, that's, so, that's well, well that's, that's I, I mean i i the answer for me is no and so the reason that i look at i mean so to me an individual is an individual a person is a person like i i think every person is fundamentally looking out for their own interests and we make little compromises for the people immediately around us that that allow those people to be in our lives. And so, but at the end of the day, like if somebody has, has repeatedly violated your boundaries and repeatedly violated your interests, 
then you move on to to a different group of people who might serve your interests and needs yeah. better. Like that, that's just how the human animal operates. And so why do you make the distinction between the human animal in the business side of it and the human animal in the government side of it and the person who's just got like, to me, a person who is president of the United States, like the thing I love about Donald Trump is that Donald Trump just kind of exposes politics for what it is, which is just a naked exercise in ego. Like, do we really think that Hillary Clinton is making decisions based on what is best for all of all of America? Or do you think that it, she's making decisions based on what is in her interests in that moment? And so when, why do you make the distinction between like, do you truly believe that when you label it government, that people do actually appeal to a higher cause? Because like, That's why, an, why do you make that distinction? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I, I don't know. I don't know is probably the answer. I, I mean, at the end of the day, I look at, um, I look at the need for some governing entity, some, some entity that is going to um, create the rules under which we get to play, under which we get to compete, under which capitalism gets to take hold, under which you know um, society thrives. But, but there has to be some arbiter because if, if you and your friends in Indianapolis and me and my friends here in Milwaukee um, are just in it for ourselves, there will inevitably be a conflict that will will be detrimental to both of us. So I well, just I, I feel like you know. But in that in that moment, like it's the definition of a national emergency. Like yeah. the reason that Donald Trump shouldn't declare the wall a national emergency is because not everybody thinks it's an emergency. But when it's a national emergency, we all know how we felt. Those of us who are older than probably thirty know how we felt on nine eleven. Like right. that was a national emergency. Right. But you also look back, like I I'd encourage you to read Black Banner by Ali Soufan, who was the like really one of the only Arab speaking FBI agents who was investigating the coal, investigating bin Laden and Al Qaeda. And like you really see, wow, the government had so many warning signs that 9-11 was going to happen. And it was mostly because of our interventions in in Saudi Arabia after after Desert Storm specifically. Like we I'm not blaming America for 9-11, but uh, we certainly did not. Uh, we, we we took people from Milwaukee and we put Milwaukee interest in the middle of Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. <laughs> and made Saudi Arabians have an interest in Milwaukee. And so I look at it and I go, like Indiana and Milwaukee, the only time that they're ever going to really, like the only time that Milwaukee and Indianapolis are really going to coordinate with the only time that they should coordinate with Saudi Arabia is when it's in both of their mutual interests. And so if you are calling someone in Brazil saying, I need coffee because I have a coffee shop in Milwaukee, that's a healthy, positive relationship for both sides. Right. And so that interaction is what will raise the, the standard of living in Brazil and raise the standard of living in Milwaukee because it's a, it's a voluntary exchange between two people. And so those two people, now, if the person in Brazil screws you, then you might go to Guatemala. They have great coffee too. Like it's, <laughs> it's lesson learned, you know? So, right. but, 
the punishment for the person in Brazil is that they no longer have access to a very wealthy market. They no longer have the revenue that you come like that's their punishment for their bad behavior. You know, because realistically, you can't go to you know, you you can't put them in jail if they're in Brazil. Like it's so. So, so is there ever is there you and ever, I have hold on, one right. one final point. Like you and I have sh these shared interests and we care about so much because we're put into too big of a container and we're all told you have to care about everything that all of America cares about and all of America has to care about all of the world. And the human brain right now is so insane because we're so overloaded instead of right. just going, I can handle my own little piece of the world today. Right. And like, that's what you're good at handling your own little piece of the world. And most people are going to thrive when that's the situation as opposed to Saudi Arabia feeling forced to deal with what Milwaukee cares about. Yeah. But doesn't, doesn't what goes on in the rest of the world impact your ability to, to function in your little slice of the world? I mean, take the, the Saudi Arabian example. Um, you know, it's in Milwaukee's best interest. It's in uh, Indiana's best, uh, Indianapolis's uh, best interest to have oil, you know, at a price that allows for $2 a gallon, not $6 a gallon. Right. So there are externalities out there that impact our ability to do what it is that we need to, to do. I, I right? agree. I also think that the, that network of complex exchanges is what eventually means that Saudi Arabia and Milwaukee will coordinate. Gotcha. It, okay. it is not, it is not the, it is you going, you know what? Damn, I have a car. I need to put gas in it. How do I get gas? Who makes gas? <laughs> right. And so you get, a, you know, and, and it sounds so simplistic, but we do it on a daily basis. Like, you know, I met Frank and Frank goes, I have this problem. I want to start podcasts. How do I do this? And then, you know, he finds me and then I help him and then he helps me. And, and you know, so we do it on a daily basis where we have these voluntary exchanges Right. And when we just become crazy is when those those exchanges become involuntary. Right. So, right. yeah, it, it, it like it is in our interest to have a relationship with the Saudi Arabia. But in my world, you're not having a, you're, you don't have an interest in all of Saudi Arabia. You are having you have an interest in one person in Saudi Arabia and right. their well-being is your well-being. But you can manage that relationship. You can't manage the the relationships of all these little complex networks. Like I just think, right. like I look at it as an untenable goal for a government of really any size, but specifically more than maybe a county sized government, to try and think that they can determine what is the best outcome for billions of people on this planet. Like I have fundamental issues with um, you know some portions of the libertarian philosophy because the population is going to hit nine, nine billion at some point. And it probably, right. some people think it'll trail off there, but so like these little communities of people, like how do you make that manageable in a world of 9 billion people? Right. Um, because we're so tribal, we want to group ourselves, but, but do you see my point in that? Yeah, I, I agree. It, I mean, I, 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 you've convinced me, you know, in terms of, I love the concept and I guess what I'm trying to wrap my head around is just what you said in, in a world of soon to be 9 billion people, how do all of these individual entities and these smaller groups function efficiently when we're competing on a global scale? 
Yeah, and and, and that's that's just what I struggle with. Is that I, I think I like maybe that, the missing but... piece is the missing piece justice. Like it, it's, uh, so I think the missing piece for a lot of people is justice because they just think, uh, oh, in a world of these complex, you know, exchanges, and we're not giving it a name anymore. It's not, you know, like we think of markets, we think of the Nasdaq stock exchange. But like I'm asking you to think in terms of your own personal life. Like you right. don't really need to care about Saudi Arabians. It's not that you shouldn't like empathy, like you have empathy for Venezuelans, but like they need, they don't need you. (laughs) They don't want you in their country. They don't need you intervening in their constitutional crisis. They want you intervening in their constitutional crisis as much as they want you intervening in ours, you know? Uh, So, uh, so, but like what they do want is a paycheck. What they do want is economic opportunity. And so if American companies can make that happen, then great. Like, the idea that billionaires shouldn't exist to me is kind of foolish because that just means that somebody was so efficient at creating something that wealth amassed so quickly that they now are able to create trust. And yeah, maybe some people hold on to it, but I mean, all the mo- all the m- biggest billionaires in America are giving away all their money. Trying like Bill Gates is going, I amass so much wealth so quickly because I'm so efficient that I'm right. going to solve malaria. Right. <laughs> so, and so you know he's that wealth that was created by Carnegie created libraries and and so like in hospitals and uh, a lot of what the government does today, like billionaires used to take care of in, in in a society that didn't have a strong central government Sure. because of their empathy, their personal empathy. They saw one person that tugged on their emotional heartstrings and they went, I've got to help. I'm burdened by my wealth. I've got to get rid of it. You know, and so the the Scrooges of the world, I think we we think in terms, because I think there are people who think in the choice between business and government, I'm going to choose government. But I look at it and go, those are the same people that are going to form businesses. Those are the same people right. that you see on the street that flip you off. Like those are the same, like just because you call it government, it doesn't mean that the individuals inside that institution aren't going to make the same self indulgent decisions that they would if they were in another container like it's it doesn't and so but if you rip me off if you hit me if you it's it's the non-aggression principle i will not use force on you to achieve social or political goals every person who joins the libertarian party signs that pledge mm-hmm. and because you pledge not to use force to solve society's problems but that doesn't mean that if you punch me there are no consequences because if you hit me, I get to hit you back. It just means that I can't hit you first. Like okay. we have to find a peaceful way to solve our disagreement. But if you hit me, I have the right to hit you back. I have the right to take you to you know, a, a judge or a police officer and say, this person hit me. And so if you steal my property, if you lie to me, if you try to defraud me, if you try to embezzle from me, you know, then there are consequences to those things because right. Right. It, it going going back to the common law. There's a framework for responsible human behavior, and those who violate those rules, there are consequences. So it's not like you get to just kill whoever you want, and there's no consequences. Like your immediate community will take care of that. I don't know what that what that looks like. Right. I, I can't. I'm not good at telling you exactly what your what your structure will look like, and naming it, and giving you a label of what a, a stateless society would exactly look like. Right. Uh, there, there are people much better at that than I, but I think in terms of your day-to-day life, it's not going to be a heck of a lot different. It'll probably be a lot wealthier, and it will probably be a lot happier because 
you're not reading in the news about how some politician is trying to make you do something you don't want to do and right. that frustration that you feel because you know so, like i really encourage the listeners if you've made it this this far into it like <laughs> really get at the root of what is making you angry about the news and what really I, I, I let me so let me ask you dave like when you really kind of boil it down i don't I, I, this is more of a homework assignment but yeah really think about like what when you read the news like what subject really just pisses you off uh i would say a perceived lack of empathy okay so like give me an example like there's one subject that you just you read and you're just like well um i i think you know um i can there's there's a number but the immigration the current immigration um discussion i think is one of them okay that, that so like what about that really just frustrates you what frustrates me is what I perceive to be a lot of misinformation out there about the um, the threat of illegal immigration, um, and and what I perceive to be um, people that aren't dealing with reality numbers, um, quantifiable, verifiable facts, but instead are dealing more from a uh, what I might call tribal or um, gut feeling. Okay. Uh, and, it, it, and, you know, I'm trying to be fairly political about how I, how I say that. Um, but I just, I, there, there is in my mind a sort of lack of empathy out there that certain current news, um, stories are, are sort of bringing to light that I guess in my naive, naivete, I, I, I didn't really realize was out there. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and so yeah, it's kind of a, it's a shock. It's more of a shock and a surprise. It's sort of a, what? So, you know, wait, 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 there are people that believe that. So is it fair to um, say you're mad about lying? Yes. Okay. Yes, that's fair. And, and, and lying, but not only lying outwardly, but lying inwardly. Right. And we talked, we talked about it in the beginning about how, uh, you know, some people don't want to admit certain things uh, because admitting them has implications and they're afraid of the implications. Right. Okay. So what, what implications are they afraid of? Uh, in, in that particular, in that particular instance, in the instance we're talking mm -hmm. about with immigration, uh, I think that if they were to, um, really let their empathy show, uh, there may be a, uh, the, an implication that I cannot support certain policies if I view this individual as fully human, as um, uh, having a life as important, as rich, as valuable as mine, that empathy and that connection would potentially create, uh, well, the implication would be, well, then I would have to oppose certain um, uh certain things that are trying to be done. You know? Right. So, okay. So you said policies, what policies? So, so like I'm for open borders because I don't, I don't believe in restricting. Uh, I don't believe it. I think labor is the same as capital is the same as goods, like putting a, a restriction on labor. Like the government shouldn't tell me who I can and can't hire. Right. Like I, I'm, you know, in, in my world, there are no borders. Uh, yeah. You, you voluntarily associate with people 
it's governed by contracts. So there's negotiations ahead of time before you enter into that relationship. Yeah. It'll be a, a marital relationship, a business relationship, and those who violate their contracts suffer penalties for that, right? So right. that's how I would organize society. I don't need borders. I don't need walls. I don't need any of that stuff kind of getting in the way of any of that, right? That's interesting. So, I like that. Yeah. So uh, you, like, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to make you say you're for open borders, but would you say you're more towards my line of thinking than maybe like a closed border situation? Like, how would you, like, when you say policies, right? About, so, fundamentally, let me distill it down. You're mad about someone lying about policies. Yes. Right? Okay. Yes. Yeah. So is it um, – I would say, you know, to, to answer your question, um, I'm not an open border person at this point. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do believe in having a secure border. I do believe in um, some degree of fencing and, you know, all the semantics that are getting thrown around. I just – I've been surprised at the way that, uh, you know, quite honestly, Central American um, uh, immigrants have been characterized in the popular media, right? Right. That, that to me was, rather than saying, look, these are mothers and children and they're as valuable human beings as you and your mother, um, and, and they're just trying to get here to make a better life for themselves, um, but the reality of our current situation is that we cannot accept everybody that wants to be here. Sure. I would, I would wholeheartedly embrace that. Right. Um, but instead I think what's happening, especially in this particular topic is, um, you know, it's, it's rapists and murderers, it's potential terrorists. It's uh, um, the, the, the characterization is it's bringing out, it's dehumanizing. It's dehumanizing. And and to me, that takes what could be a reasonable discussion about what we can and cannot handle as a country, right? Right. And 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 doing it in an empathetic way and doing it in a uh, humanizing and appropriate way, it has turned it into a discussion that it never should have been in the first place. And that's, that's something where I feel... Um, the, the dehumanizing aspect of it really is angering me because I didn't realize that that undercurrent was out there. I didn't realize that that message would resonate with as many people as it has. You and I are from the North. And so, yes. you know, I'm from Indianapolis, you're from Milwaukee. And, you know, I'm, I grew up in a town that was the national meeting place for the Quakers and like was a major underground railroad stop. Most of the houses downtown built before the Civil War have underground railroad basements. Yep. Like yeah. I just, I was having a conversation with a friend in Georgia recently about Gen Z kids who do racist stuff and my jaw hit the floor because like it just didn't occur to me that racism was like, it just like it, my brain couldn't process that people actually like, Right. Were they joking? Like, it had to be a joke, right? Like, they're right. going for a cheap laugh. Like, it just didn't occur to me. Like, I think sometimes in the North, especially, or when you've been, like, I think, like, we don't have to think about the things that, like, Al thinks about. Like, right. what talking about. Like, right. you and I don't leave the house and think that we might not come home. Like, I got pulled over last Friday night. It never occurred to me until he got a little hostile that I could right. be in danger of being hurt. Like, you know, but the second those lights go on for Al, it's a different story, right? Exactly. So. 
So it's just kind of hard, I think, because you and I probably associate with a certain type of person who have the same values that you just kind of outlined. Like you have built a community around uh, empathy. You don't dehumanize people. You don't accept lying. You don't accept fraud. You, you know, and so you have built a community that deals in those terms. And there are communities, despite the ultimate referee being in existence, those communities have still managed to build themselves. And it's like, is there a law that I can pass that is going to change their heart? Or how do I actually change a racist thinking? How do I change like, and I'm not saying anybody who is for right closed borders or a wall is a racist. That's not what I'm right, saying. Right, right, right. No, I, I, I understand think, what you're saying. I understand. What you're I, saying. I think there are some people who are motivated, you know, like, and I get your argument that, you know, if I were president tomorrow, like I couldn't advocate for open borders because it's like, all right, at least let's I do these things because there's steps to like, I'm telling you my end goal. Right. But, you know, you've, you've formed yourself into a certain community. They've, you know, a racist, let's say a clan member has formed themselves into a community uh, to, to put a fine point on it. Right. And those things happened what, regardless of whether the government was there or not. And well, I, I, and, I'll, so, I'll say, I was just gonna say, I'll say one, you know, one response to that. And, and, and yes, I do think that um, laws change opinions over time. So if you take, for example, Milwaukee is an extremely um, segregated city still to this day. And that goes all the way back to the housing segregations, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the redlining. And, and um, so when, when fair housing came about over time, what is happening and not, not necessarily in that generation, but over time, what is happening is greater and greater exposure and integration, which is then breaking down those barriers. So I would say, um, you know, the, the high school that I went to when, when, um, when Frank and I, uh, went to the high school, I think there was probably four African-Americans the entire high school. At that point, it was, it was one of the larger high schools in the, in the state. Um, right now my kids go to that high school and it's, I believe almost 50% minority. Um, and that, that's phenomenal because here you have a situation that you have 50% Caucasian, 50% minority, and there really isn't much racial tension or racial issue in that school. Right. And I think, I think that, you know, if you, if, if there wouldn't have been civil rights act, if there wouldn't have been fair housing, if there wouldn't have been uh, a lot of this legislation that is, that is breaking down those barriers and forcing uh, for enforcing integration, you wouldn't necessarily have the scenario now where minorities and Caucasians can can go to school together and and not think twice about it. But right? in some cases, you know, here in Indianapolis, you know, we 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 had Crispus Attucks, which Oscar Robertson, the great basketball player, went to, mm-hmm. um, and everybody was segregated. You know, it was it was government policy that kind of put everybody and fair housing is is sometimes a poor example, because some place like some places like Chicago or here in in Indianapolis, there was fair housing, but it ended up being coming a slum because you're pushing people of a certain socioeconomic class in together. Right. And they become dependent on that particular government 
policy. And then, so it, it's, I mean, to me, like, I went to a, a school that was 98% white. I the, the 2% was Muslim. We have a major Muslim, uh, you know, which was fascinating being 18 and 9-11 happening in my senior year, like watching right. best friends who are Muslim go through what they had to go through. But, you know, it, you know, I, so I kind of grew up naive about race, you know, because we grew up in this, you know, community of Quakers that had right. certain, certain values that were enshrined three generations before, you know, and uh, my naivete could probably be best expressed sometimes as, I, I don't know if racist, but you'd be like, wow, that's ignorant. <laughs> it, <laughs> and it wasn't until, it wasn't a government program, it was work, it was, work, it was capitalism right. that ultimately brought down those racial barriers. Like I was always a very hardcore pro, you know, crackdown on immigration type conservative. And then I worked for a garden center and then I worked with Hispanics for the first time and saw the family values, the sense of community, the, the deep rooted, you know, Christian values of the Catholic church were expressed through, through these people, through these folks. And it was just kind of like, oh, I'm, maybe I'm wrong about immigrants maybe they're here for these reasons and like right it's capitalism that kind of broke that down and i think that is the way that it I, is for most people. i agree with you i agree I, I think capitalism has a wonderful um opportunity to break down those barriers i, I really do I, I mean i think that um um you know if you're running a company and and uh you have profit incentive. It doesn't matter if it's male, female, uh, black, white, what have you. Um, it is a great equalizer. Um, but you have to make sure that, that the opportunity, uh, to, to achieve is equally spread out. If that makes sense. Right. Because I think diversity is brought about by exposure, which usually comes about by economic interest, which going back to each person's interest. Like, I think if you look at gay marriage, like, uh, you know, that's an issue where society led, led by culture, led by Queer Eye for the Straight Guy did more for the gay movement than any politician did, except for maybe Harvey Milk, <laughs> you know, like, because as a young man who, who just said a lot of the things that Eminem said, watching Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, I was exposed to gay culture, for, gay people for the first time. And I went, actually kind of nice, like they're real people. Like I just, right. so, and, and again, that's more that's of a so free true. market so yeah. like do uh, what how do you view government like do you view government as an arbiter of morality or as a fundamentally moral institution no no i think it's an arbiter of as we were talking about earlier this sort of the public sphere this empty space right and it's it's the referee that keeps that space empty it's the referee that says um, it doesn't have a particular morality. It doesn't have a particular religion that it enforces. It doesn't have a particular um, ethos or anything. It just basically says um, within this sphere, everybody has to be treated equally. Right. Now, now how, do you, how, do you, how did you come to this conclusion? How did you, on what information are you making this informed judgment? Well, and I guess I should preface that by saying that's not what I believe it is currently. That's what I believe it should be, right? Um, and and how I came to that, I mean, I just I, I, years and years of 
of thinking. I mean, my my background, uh, my undergrad was in history and political science, and um, so it's just something I've always been interested in, um, and and just thinking about it. Sort of like uh, my my biggest. I mean, you mentioned you're a Christian. My my biggest concern, or one of my biggest concerns, is that uh, there will be a resurgence in attempting to define how the public sphere is managed. And um, that kind of, I'm more of a secularist and that, that sort of, that scares me in the sense because I don't want any one ideology, any one religion, any one thought process to sway that neutrality that should be out there in the, in the public sphere. So in, in what I've laid out over the five hours that we've talked. I know, I know. We, got, we do got to wrap it up, don't we? Yeah. Uh, but over the course of the conversations that we've had on the three podcasts, do you hear much room for a public sphere? It, would you say that there is a public sphere in the way that you understand it in the worldview that I've articulated? That there is a public sphere? Uh, yes. I, I do think there is a public sphere. It seems to be, in my mind, more chaotic than um, uh, than neutral, if that makes sense. Would you say that it is easier or harder to control the public sphere in my worldview? Um, my gut inclination is to say in your worldview, it would be more difficult to control the public sphere. And why is that? Um, because you don't have a centralized uh, system of enforcement of neutrality. And you have an increased amount of choice. That's true. Yeah. So yeah. so I, as a Christian, can be the largest Christian broadcaster in the world if I wanted to. But if I'm one of 50 broadcasters <laughs> instead of one of three, right. my influence doesn't mean as much. And so my, my worldview is built on persuasion. My worldview is built on persuading you that I'm right. My right. worldview is not built on forcing you to live the way that I think you ought to live. Like I was an atheist and I became a Christian because I was persuaded. I had anti, I had homophobic beliefs and then I became persuaded to not have those beliefs anymore. Right. I was very uh, pro-military, uh, I'm pro-military, but I was very pro-war. Right. And then I became persuaded that I wasn't. And I think that when when you want to change society in terms of positive values, and the reason that I'm anti-war is because I think it's less violent. It's it doesn't promote. I'm I'm not I'm a non-violent person. It mm. fits into my worldview. You know, I think uh, I don't want anybody to get the the idea that I'm not for soldiers or 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 veterans or anything because I definitely don't think that way. Uh, and I'm not anti-police. I just think that uh, the people that make decisions make bad decisions. And, and right, amazingly, right. like this, this will be telling. On my Facebook page of 95,000 people for We Are Libertarians, the number one job is veteran. Okay. <laughs> I have more veterans and military members that like the We Are Libertarians Facebook page than any other job group. And it's because those guys went in as young guys looking for economic opportunity and believing a certain set of things and then got into the military and realized that's not why we're here. Right. We're here to do whatever those guys want us to do. And it's not what I, my values are not in line with theirs. 
And so what's the alternative? And so libertarians offer, you know, it's why Ron Paul and Gary Johnson and, and, and non-interventionists in general seem to get most of the military support when it comes to election time. So no, you're, you're right. You're definitely right. Yeah. You know, and so my my worldview when it when it comes to the public sphere, it's harder to control because you have more choice and you have less channels to be controlled. It's not that there won't be there won't be institutions that are controlled by powerful interests, but you have more of an ability to escape those interests and to live as you see fit as you'd right. like to govern yourself. Right, that makes sense. It, well, we it's a hard to grasp. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it, Chris. Um, we should probably uh, start to wrap it up. I think we've gone, uh, gosh, at least an hour, hours. if not more. Yeah, almost two hours. <laughs> but, this is uh, like a this is like a walk in the park for me. I could go. Yeah, there. yeah. I, mean, I could I could honestly sit here and do this for hours. But uh, <laughs> um, but no, I appreciate it, and and um, I'd love to do it again sometime. And I, you've definitely you've definitely opened my eyes to a different approach to things. That's for sure. So. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm yeah. glad I could persuade you. Yeah, yeah, and no, I appreciate it. I'd uh, hate to have to come over and beat you up and tell you this is what you need. <laughs> yeah, I would hate that as well. But uh, <laughs> Of course, that's the point. Yeah, yeah. All right, it was All a great right. to talk to you, Dave. Yeah, you as well.